a place like Cambodia had recently undergone intellectual genocide, where the Khmer Rouge and the Pol Pot regime had decided to wipe out their intellectual class, um, starting with physicians and teachers. Mm. And so I said, hey, you know, it's only two hours away from Singapore. I come from a really, I would say, privileged society with a lot of resources in Singapore. And I just found it to be really unacceptable to stand by and watch. Welcome to the AWS Health Innovation Podcast, where you can learn from entrepreneurs and investors who are driving progress in healthcare and life science around the globe. Hi, everybody, and welcome back. I'm Alex Merwin, Head of Growth, Healthcare and Life Science Startups at AWS. I don't know about you, but for me, I rarely go through the back catalog of my favorite podcasts, which is really a shame because there's amazing stuff back there. But ultimately, what pops up in my feed is what I end up listening to. So in that spirit, I've gone into our archive and found an episode from season one that I think is incredibly inspiring in how it details the clinician to entrepreneur journey and also an individual's lived experience in seeing disparities in healthcare delivery and then doing something about it. Anyways, enough for me. I can't wait to hand it over to our host. I'm your host, Joe Shunk a physician and former health tech executive. Today, I'm joined by Dr. John Ng, CEO and founder of Iterative Scopes, a company using artificial intelligence-based precision medicine in gastroenterology with the aim of establishing a new standard of care for the detection and treatment of gastrointestinal diseases. John and I discuss why healthcare entrepreneurship is so often a winding path, how skepticism can be an asset for a founder, and why raising large amounts of money is often a double-edged sword for startup teams. Enjoy. Dr. John Ng, CEO and founder of Iterative Scopes. Thanks for joining me today. Hey, Joe. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Can you start off just tell us and telling us a bit about what Iterative Scopes is and what you do? Sure. So Iterative Scopes is an AI-first company. We essentially apply computer vision algorithms to GI gastrointestinal diseases. We use these computer vision algorithms to measure severity of disease. We also, um, for example, in colorectal cancer, we help to detect polyps, find more polyps for physicians that will then help them to recept these dangerous lesions. And for example, diseases like inflammatory bowel disease, we help to measure severity of disease across time. We use this data for a number of functions. So for example, helping physicians to determine the uh, impact of drugs on their patients, helping pharmaceutical companies also to determine the efficacy of their clinical trials, and also to help to recruit the right patients into the right trials as well. So what about your journey and background coming to this? Like why, why tackle this segment with your experience? Yeah, that's a great question. So I got quite a long journey in healthcare till date. And I think, um, scopes is really a combination of my experience in healthcare over a period of, I'd say now nearly 20 years. So my own journey, I'm originally from Singapore, grew up really middle class and I had my first experience in healthcare outside of Singapore in Cambodia, which back in the day when I was 15, I was invited by a friend's dad who happened to be a surgeon to Cambodia to help carry his bags. And as part of this journey, as part of this trip, 
I had the opportunity to enter a pediatric hospital and I realized that there was nothing in the hospital. It was wooden beds, three kids to a bed, surgical table was built with an Ikea table and torch lights. And the lights would, you know, electricity would normally go out. And that made me firstly really curious, but also it kind of shut me where I realized that the situation, which even neighboring countries in Singapore was facing, their reality was very different. Where a place like Cambodia had recently, back then recently undergone intellectual genocide, where the Khmer Rouge and the Pol Pot regime had decided to wipe out their intellectual class and starting with physicians and teachers. And so I said, hey, this is, it's only two hours away from Singapore. We come with, I come from a really, I would say, privileged society with a lot of resources in Singapore. And I just found it to be really unacceptable to stand by and watch. And that eventually led to me spending the next, I'd say about 15 years doing a couple of things, building, helping to build the first open heart surgery programs for heart surgery for kids in Cambodia. Just get first neonatal wards, which is uh, care for babies under 28 days, both ICU as well as novel care, birds and reconstructive units. We created the first pediatric ones in Cambodia. And then we moved on to building whole hospitals in rural Cambodia as well. We built quite a few. These hospitals are around today and they see about a thousand kids a day in each hospital. But I think the most important thing was it gave me a really early insight into how healthcare really was in the majority of the world and how we weren't on track to catching up and helping them to catch up to the disparity that we were seeing. But as I approached my 15th anniversary and working in Cambodia, um, you know, and meanwhile, I got through med school. I, I had done that fair bit of surgical training and I, you know, just felt really disappointed in how we were doing things, right? We, we were not, um, I just felt like as we started examining different countries and different areas in Cambodia where we could work in as well, we just um, had a sinking feeling that we were back at square one again, where it's just facing the same problems, facing the same issues. And at the core of which was information on medical knowledge transfer, where we take 15 years to train a physician, including 10 for specialization. And we couldn't do that faster. And it's just insufficient today. How did you get from there to a very private sector commercial enterprise? Because I think the bridge is particularly relevant to then how you get to iterative scopes. So I ended up breaking my wrist during my clinical days. I was a total surgical junkie. I loved surgery. But at the end of that was I ended up breaking my wrist in a car accident and having to take some time off. That really forced me to think about the why I was in healthcare and refocus my uh, intention. Um, you know, I realized that the why I was in healthcare was to help as many people as I could. And that did not necessarily mean doing it with my own two hands in a surgical theater. In fact, the more I thought about it, the more frustrated I got because I was like, hospitals are seeing a thousand kids a day in Cambodia are being actually well run, whereas um, I would struggle with one or two patients a day, right? And it would like really tire me out. And I decided to take some time off and I said, yeah, I need some time to rethink how uh, we're doing things. And by then I was working in the Ministry of Health in Singapore, overseeing a lot of surgical policy work. And I decided to apply for grad school. So ended up applying for and getting into MIT, doing my MBA there, and I was also at Harvard doing my MPA and uh, teaching as a healthcare policy fellow as well. And so um, moving out to the, uh, the US about four and a half years ago. 
And so MIT was like the bridge step that got you into founding a startup to work on these challenges at scale, essentially. You know, um, it's funny, and you and I have talked about our shared experience, that you never think about scale when you're a clinician. It's not a word that you use. It's a, maybe in the public health space, but never in the context of direct clinical care. And when I made the jump over to the policy world, it sounds like you've done some of that through your time in, in Cambridge and Boston. That was the first time that I, the concept of it came through, but not even then I would never have used the word scale because it's a very businessy word to think about. What I love about iterative scopes is that it fits into the way clinicians that are doing these scopes for GI disorders think and approach the process. Like it sort of, we always talk about workflow with healthcare tools and it really seems to nestle neatly in the workflow, the existing workflow. Is that an accurate statement for how you envisioned it? Oh, absolutely. I think from day one, we had had this obsession around workflow and making it really as convenient as possible for physicians to adopt this, understanding that one of the toughest problems in healthcare is simply adoption. You get a physician and having been then, I think being able to empathize with that, um, it also carries through to my own behavior today where you ask me to, you know, do two extra clicks and I'm like, I don't want to do it. No way. Right? Yeah. It, it, yeah. There's no way. <laughs> I'm going to take the straightest path towards right. my objective. It's a very yeah, surgical mindset too, yeah. right? Efficient, if it, nope. the economy of motion and efficiency. Yeah. So I think placing that demand on ourselves and placing the intellectual rigor that behind trying to think about how we can reduce steps to adoption and then steps to utility has just been really critical in our work today. And I believe it's going to pay itself off eventually as well. Through the ideation stages with your time at MIT and thinking through solving big problems, like, what was the spark? Like, how did you go from this is a problem to this becomes a software-based solution to this is a company? Because that is not, a, not always the most straightforward path. Yeah. So I think I, where I started with was a North Star of what I want to do, which my North Star for coming to school in the first place was how can I use technology to close in on healthcare disparities and gaps there. And then looking, you know, understanding as well that most innovations and most big leaps within healthcare did not come from within healthcare. And so having an open mind there, like it's just really difficult to create new technology within healthcare. The risk aversion is too high. The cost is too high. There isn't enough investment. It's not the right mix. But I was like, are the technologies which are right out there, which are right to bring into healthcare that I can be at the leading edge of and decide on the how we bring into healthcare. And so approaching the North Star with, a, with an open mind, I arrived at MIT and within the first few months, came into contact with uh, basically computer vision as a technology. I think one of the first areas where I saw it was um, we have this what called like demo day for Delta V, which is accelerator program at MIT. And um, someone was working on computer vision algorithms for autonomous vehicles. I think back then was they were building repositories of videos for autonomous cars. And I was like, that looks like fascinating technology, but if only I could use it in healthcare, right? They were drawing bounding boxes around cars, cats, dogs, trees. And I was like, why can't I 
draw these boxes around, um, you know, various types of tumors, for example. Uh, but perhaps not with the same use case, I'm not trying to drive something around the body, but are there areas in which we need to count these objects or are there areas in which we need to classify these uh, objects, right? And what it mean, and what does that actually mean for patients? How much do physicians actually care about it? So thinking about it that way instead. Since those early stages, have you pivoted at all? Like how, you know, has it been sort of a direct line then? Okay, we have the technology, we have the need, let's marry the two and then let's just get it in Doc's hands. Any winding paths along that way that you'd like to share? A winding path is the right way to describe it. I would say I, I like to approach these entrepreneurial questions with a really open mind, understanding that healthcare is not static. It's slow to change, but at the same time, it's definitely not static around what the market demands, what physicians perceive to be the right solution at the right time. What you know, for example, pharmaceutical companies are investing in at the point in time, one needs to take a step back and consider all these different factors and try and find your, you know, find a spot in the middle of that intersection is what I constantly try to do. And so especially as picking, while I started with an initial thesis around, yeah, you know, computer vision in healthcare, picking a specialty, which I thought was very visually dependent, which is gastro. By the same time, didn't have much competition. At the same time, had endpoints in their care models, which was visually driven, all the way up to the FDA recognizing it as well, was what I did. But approaching it with an open mind as to like how we build a business model around it, how we build our use case around it, who really cares about it, who our users are. I think we have found many new insights along the way as we speak to our customers, as we speak to physicians that are having really pivotal in product and where it stands today. What did your early team look like? What other skills? Sounds like you had some, certainly the technical know-how with such a, like a deep tech solution embedded in what you were doing, but yeah, talk, what was that? What was that first, first few hires or the founding team? like at Interscopes? The first team members were consisting of myself and my closest classmates that I could find, I could persuade to work along myself. And, and also a couple of uh, undergrads from MIT who were looking for summer jobs. It was literally, let's hang it together, either working teachers. You may or may not think this is a long-term thing, but let's push some buttons and let's try to see if number one technology Asking ourselves, what is the minimum needed to persuade ourselves that this might be a viable number one technology to apply into healthcare? But number two, starting to ask ourselves, like, is this the right field to approach it in? Is this the right specialty? Uh, do we even have a business model here? Uh, so, you know, I started the company three months after I arrived in the US. And I, it's not like I have a ton of friends in the US at all. I was the only Singaporean in my year at MIT as well at the business school, it was more like, Hey, can I, you know, let's, let's grab a couple of people and let's try and run with it. Understanding that the yeah, entrepreneurship is also iterative in so many ways, not just in this model, but also in the type of people that I eventually will work with as well. And we still have the same approach today. Was there a specific moment when you thought 
this actually works as a business. Uh, and part of the reason I ask this is I had the opposite moment when I was at uh, my own journey at MIT with folks who are postdocs and engineers. And we had a technology that we had taken through a, an accelerator program. It was the classic case without getting into too many details of a novel, interesting technology that wasn't solving a problem that folks would pay for. There was no real business model for it. So it was in, a, in the most reductive sense, like a solution looking for a problem. And um, which is, you know, I learned a lot. It was interesting. It was exactly why I decided to leave clinical world and policy and go back to a place like MIT. But I had that moment where I thought this is not going to work as a business. Was there an opposite moment for you? Was there a mirror image where you're like, oh, somebody's going to pay for this. It's not just a cool thing to do. There's somebody who will pay to make this an actual business. I think last day we had our thesis all along. We have been trying. I would say for two years to, to work along this line. But last year was a really pivotal year for us where we had our first major contracts, not pilot contracts, but major contracts with both providers, pharma, as well as strategic partners come together all the same year. Last year was pretty much the year where I thought to myself, this might really work. I, but in the meanwhile, even up to today as well, I think a healthy dose of skepticism around, like, is this the right business? Is this the right business model? And are there ways in which we can get better at this? It's always healthy for both myself and the company. I don't think I've ever told myself directly, this is it, this is what's going to work. I think at most, the gauge has gone out to like 60% at max. And then it's come down and I'm always trying to not be overly skeptical of myself, but skeptical of myself, but really trying to push ourselves forward into how we can do things better, how we can build a better business here. Have you had to modulate that at all with teammates or investors? I would say yes. You know, I think it's very different. So teammates, we have, have, a, have a fantastic team here at, at Scopes. I just really couldn't ask for better in terms of folks who have been through the journey. We even have folks who have been here since day one, still hustling alongside with me. So it's been a pretty incredible journey. I think we all want to believe that we've made it, but at the same time, I just constantly have to remind everyone, hey, the day you get complacent is the day that this company really starts to fall apart. And we're not here to build the small. The reason why we started the company was to move a needle and the needle is a really big one, right? So yeah, we might be impacting thousands of patients today, but I would like to ask the question of like, how do we get to, how do we get to two orders of magnitude higher, three orders of magnitude higher, right? Rather than just thousands, but just tens of thousands, which to me, it's, it's nice, but it's still pretty trivial in terms of what, what's needed out there. For investors, I think we have a fair amount of investor enthusiasm right now. Having just come off our $150 million Series B raise, I think, and we do get offered Series C checks fairly often. You know, the thing that we want to make sure that we are being cognizant about is matching our ability to deliver against fundraising. I would say on retrospect, fundraising while it does empower us to do a lot more things with a lot more confidence, there are a fair bit of downside implications to raising massive amounts of money, right? The expectations go up, you're forced to mature a lot faster. The company has to mature a lot faster. You bring in a whole different type of talent, right? And there's always a danger, I think, of 
feeling like the fundraising is the goal or the thing that you're doing. And it's not, it's a means to do the thing that you're trying to do. That's what I've seen in the startup world over the last couple of years is sometimes in with good intentions, people think, oh, we've done it. We raised X millions of dollars. And it's like, that's not the thing is what you're trying to do. And that money allows you to do that. Do you feel like that's any, certainly as a CEO, you have to mitigate that potential within your team. Has that been an issue at all for you? I'd say not a huge issue here. I think we have the privilege of having really great investors that allow, somewhat allow us to align, not entirely, but more or less align our objectives of what it would take to build a lasting company with what they feel is success and to support the next fundraise. You know, we've had that privilege of also interacting with some really savvy investors who understand what we're trying to build. And for those who don't, sometimes I think no loss, right? It somewhat helps me as a self-filtering mechanism where, um, you know, we put out all objectives that we say, hey, we're here to build the lasting business. These are some objectives which we've hit, which we think will help us to, to build a lasting, impactful company, right? And I understand your objectives. I understand what you're here for. And yeah, that's one of my priorities, but it's ultimately not the priority that I have and allowing me to prioritize building a lasting company, an impactful lasting company ahead of fundraising is what we look for. And as we wrap up, I'd love to hear any lessons learned you have moving from not just the clinical side, because we see physician entrepreneurs all the time, like there are two on this podcast, but not just that, but also globally, like bringing your global perspective from working in a different country than you were raised and then practicing in that country, then coming all the way on the other side of the world to the United States and starting a company. What are some of the lessons learned? Like, what do you incorporate from your clinical global mindset into what you're doing now? And how does that shape the vision that you have for iterative scopes? I think for myself, I apply this constantly, like trying to learn attitude, trying to get feedback from myself, trying to be as observant as possible about the world around me, not just in like Cambodia, not just in the Valley where we fundraise from, but every time I have an interaction, every time I visit a clinic, I try to be out there, uh, I guess be less out in front of everything and more soaking in uh, information, learning about, there's so much to learn about people, dynamics, interaction, how can we serve them better? How can we enter their daily lives in a less intrusive way and more along the lines of what they want to see and understanding things as a whole, understanding people as a whole really matter a lot. People really matter a lot. And that goes down to even like my teammates, people we work with today, our partners. It's all about relationships. It's all about people. And so I think that would be my number one learning throughout the years. John Ng, CEO and founder of Iterative Scopes. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for joining us today for the AWS Health Innovation Podcast. If you want to get in touch with AWS, please check out our show notes where you can find a link. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to support us is to share it with your colleagues and friends. 
We also really appreciate your reviews and ratings wherever you listen to podcasts. We love hearing feedback from our listeners, so please don't hesitate to get in touch. Again, you'll find all the details in our show notes. See you next week.